Good morning, everybody. Thank, welcome, welcome. Give yourselves a hand. <laughs> so this is Chris Garada's Bible study. I am not Chris Garada, and actually, let me just close this door so I don't get distracted. My name is Ken Brannan, and I am your new vice rector here at St. Michael. And we are just so glad to be here, and my family and I, were having so much fun. So thank you for welcoming us, um, for including us in your activities. We're really enjoying our time with you. So this Bible study is kind of epic, you know. I, I know that I've been watching on Wednesday mornings, and Chris will come in here, and then just people start streaming from parking lots. It's so great to see you come and participate in kind of a deep dive in Scripture. I know Chris appreciates your presence here. I certainly do. Um, and I think any time that we take some time and go more deeply into Holy Scripture, we're blessed by it. Um, one of my theories is that, yes, we interpret the Bible, but I think just as importantly, the Bible interprets us. And sometimes we don't talk about that mutual interpretation. Um, sometimes we think we're a little too smart and that we know a little too much about the Bible and it's going to kind of follow our will. And in fact, if you do a prayerful reading of Scripture, what happens is you start to reorient. You start to shift um, as these sacred words begin to reorient you and me. Um, so that's my hope in this Bible study. Yes, we'll talk about some of the text. We'll talk about some of the background. Um, but I hope you'll bring yourself to this enterprise and ask yourself, where am I in the lesson? Where am I in the scripture? How, ca how can I relate? <laughs> it's okay, don't worry, you're in the scripture. How does my life resonate with what I'm seeing in the scripture? And if we have time today, um, I, I do wanna go through the passages with you. I wanna talk a little bit about the context. Um, and if we have time, I might try an exercise with you. Some of you are familiar with, and I'm not sure we'll have time for it, it's Lexio Divina. And the concept is take a very small section of scripture and read it meditatively and then respond to it. So we'll see if we have time for that. And if not, I'll definitely do it in another group because I love, uh, I love that way of doing scripture. So why don't we uh, begin with prayer. Um, I ask you just to center yourself in God's presence as we begin. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, in the passage for today, King Melchizedek calls you God Almighty. And he proceeds to bless Abram for his conquest of the Eastern kings and makes it clear that Abram's family is destined to take possession of the land which you promised. I pray now that as we read these chapters and as we inwardly digest what we hear that we might be aligned with your purposes and that you might cleanse us in the reading. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So for those of you who might just be showing up for the first time, I'm not sure if there's any of you, but one thing to remember at church, church is always intended for the one who's not here yet. And so anything we can do to create on-ramps for folks who are coming for the first time, I encourage you to do that. Otherwise, it becomes a little clicky, a little clubby, um, and I think it's just great for someone who's never been here before to feel like, hey, I, I have a part here. So if you are visiting for the first time, welcome. Um, what we're doing is we're looking at the book of Genesis, and my understanding is you've gotten through chapters 1 through 12. Does that sound right? And today we're doing 13 and 14. I looked at chapter 12 that you did last week, and I'm not sure if I'm glad I missed it or 
I mean, that is a tough chapter. And for those who don't remember, it's that moment where Abram and Sarai go down to Egypt and in a sense, agree among each other that they will pretend like Sarai is Abram's sister. And in so doing, the Pharaoh then takes her into her household as his wife. So it's a kind of a trickster, it's a deceit. In the process, Abraham, the brother, Abram the brother gets all kinds of cattle and silver and gold. I mean, it works out just swimmingly for Abram. And then there's a, po- a point where it's almost as if God knows the deceit and plagues come upon Pharaoh's house. And rather than destroying them, Pharaoh is, is upset and perplexed about why. Okay, thank you so much. I love it. Um, the Pharaoh is, is um, confused as to why Abram would, and Sarai would do this trick on him and put his own life and put his household in danger. Um, so that was, and there were some questions following that Bible study. Some of you emailed Chris um, and talked about that. And before I get into 13 and 14, you've had a week now to sit with that story, the trickster story. Any follow-up, any questions you have, anything you want to voice before we now move into Lot and the land? Any observations that, you, that stuck with you through the week? I think one of the questions I have was that wrongdoing on Abram's part or was that shrewd? Here's what I will tell you, regardless of how you answer that question, it's told from a man, man's point of view. Right? This is a man's point of view that, yes, you can look at it and say he was shrewd, he was scared for his life, and so he took an action um, that would preserve him and his family. You can make the case that it was actually a kindness, that there was an ethical dimension to it. But notice that Sarai is silent in the whole account. She doesn't say anything. And we're left, I think, as the reader to wonder about how that impacted Sarai, how she felt about it. And that's the thing I think Chris probably talked with you in previous classes. Women are critical to the book of Genesis, but usually through the personal realm and usually through the trickster realm. In other words, they are the ones, women are the ones at the point of transformation that keep things moving, that has the story developed. So they're actually at the fulcrum but told through the male's perspective, through a male-dominated society, they're not given much of a voice to comment on what that is like. So I want to acknowledge that, um, kind of to look at it with eyes, not only of the male viewpoint, but also the female viewpoint, and to let that disturbance be there, to let that wondering be there. Um, What was Sarai's role in that? Was she fully engaged in that? um, Or did she have misgivings, which I would imagine she might. So that was the last, any, any other questions about that or that you want to kind of flesh out? Yes. Was Sarai his only wife? I want to say at that point, um, possibly, but I think in that era, they would have had concubines and we know later Ishmael comes through the servant. Um, I actually don't know. I think Sarai was his only wife unless someone knows differently. I think so. Yeah. All right, so let's transition now to 13 and 14. That's just happened. And then what you have is you have this language in 13.1 where it says, Abram went up from Egypt. And that formula, that way of saying it is just like Israel. Do you remember with Moses? Moses came down, set the people free. They came up out of Egypt. And so I think what the 
authors, we call them the redactors, the one who put these texts together, what they're wanting you to hear in Abram, they want you to hear Israel's story being recapitulated in him. And so many of, there's so many parallels between the story of Abraham and how the story is told and the people of Israel. Because remember, although this is, we've been in the area of prehistory, chapters one through 11 is kind of primordial history, uh, myth as it were, with a capital M, not make-believe, but just, you know, it's kind of prehistory. Then with the patriarchs and the matriarchs, we start getting some historical contours. We start getting some sense that there really was some people in a certain place. And even though the stories may have been carried down from generations to generations, we're now starting to get into focus this particular family whom God has made promise through. And so now we're beginning to see the contours of the history of Israel in Abram, in Sarai, and in his family. So Abram comes up out of Egypt and he is rich. He is loaded with camels and gold and silver. And what's remarkable is Pharaoh doesn't take any of that back from him, even despite the deceit. And even though he sends them out and says, leave from me, he basically lets Abram keep all of his accumulations. Um, so again, if you look at the beginnings of the people of Israel, this is helping them get their start in the promised land, um, that they're not coming with nothing, they're actually coming with goods, um, and they've become large, they're a large family now. In fact, that's the essence of this story in chapter 13, is you have Abram and Sarai, and then you have Abram's brother's son, Lot. So Lot has now come along with Abram, he's tracking with Abram through this journey. And so now they've come up out of Egypt, they've settled into the land in the south of the Promised Land, what would have been called the land of Canaan. And it becomes clear that between Lot's family and Abram's family and all their livestock and all, all of that, that the land is getting tired, that it can't handle all of their numbers on this one small area. So they have a moment where their um, servants and their workers are fighting with each other. They're not getting along because they're trying to get their flocks fed. You start getting the um, beginnings of some uh, strife between the families. And then it says, Abram says to Lot, let me just see if I have my glasses here. I think I can do it without. Thank you. It has come to this point, yes. It says, then Abram said to Lot, let there, and I'm on verse eight, so I'm on chapter 13, verse eight. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herders and my herders, for we are kindred, is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. So now we've had this joining and now we have this language of separation where Abram's inviting Lot to scan the entire land and choose his area, the, the area where he wants to go, and Abraham will take whatever's left. It's a fascinating question whether, um, what Abram's intentions in this are, uh, because God has promised Abram a particular land, and if Lot chooses wrongly, it's going to confuse God's promise in the land. But it seems like there is an open-heartedness, that there is wanting to make peace, and he kind of gives Lot the ability to make the decision about which land he wants, which direction he wants to go. And it's interesting because it says that Lot looked around him, he saw the plain of Jordan was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. So now we're talking about Eden, and I'll get back to this in a minute because that's significant. But he sees this well watered land and he basically decides to go east into the valley, into the Jordan Valley near where Sodom and Gomorrah is. Now at this point, 
Sodom and Gomorrah, we haven't heard that it's evil. We're going to hear in a minute. But we know that that's kind of an area um, where sin and evil is rampant. Lot wouldn't have known that. But that's the, the direction he heads. He heads east into this fertile valley near Sodom and Gomorrah. And then... And then so basically, uh, Abram is left with the land of Canaan. And then listen to this passage, and this is the one we might look at more deeply in a minute. I'm now on verses 14 through 18 of chapter 13. Remember that throughout Genesis, God is making promises either to Adam and Eve or to all humankind through Noah. God is continually making promises, and now the Lord makes another promise to Abram. It's at least the second time, might be the third time, that the Lord is making a promise to Abram and says, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, raise your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Rise up, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. What's fascinating about that passage is God tells Abram to look in every direction, and that's going to be his land. That includes the land of Lot. So you have a paradox. On the one hand, Lot has chosen his land. He's moved his family east. But now, once he's left, God says to Abram, all of this land will be to your descendants. So we have this little tension to wonder what's going to happen where even the land of Lot ends up being Abram's inheritance. So that's a, an interesting moment. But back to Lot. So in a sense, Lot isn't doing anything wrong in his choice, but it is significant that he says it reminded him of the Garden of Eden. And what some um, scholars have said is there's an attempt by Lot to go back to the good old days, to go back to perfection, kind of before redemption. Um, and in that choice, it was a lesser choice. Rather than pressing forward into a new trust into God's faithfulness, he's trying to move backwards into the Garden of Eden, into when things were perfect. Um, you can decide whether, how much weight to give that, um, but that's one question about Lot. Um, was he trying to recapitulate the good old days, the perfection, rather than leaning into God's future? And the other thing is it's just clear that Lot doesn't have perspective. He makes his choice without having the data to know what to make of it. And so he makes his choice, and we're going to find out in the next chapter some of the challenges that come with that. So any questions about chapter 13 at this point? Anything that this raises for you? Any wonderings? Yes, and if you'll just say your question loud, I'll repeat it. Hmm. Okay, let me repeat that. Do we draw any parallels between Lot's decision process, choosing, and our living today, the way we make decisions today. I would invite you to say more. <laughs> what, how, how might that, what, what do you see? Let me repeat that. So the choices we often make today are not the wisest choices, that not everything that glitters is gold, so to speak. Thank you, yeah. And I think there's something else. I think, oh. We all have a longing for the good old days. There's a tendency to want to go back rather than lean forward. So Kristen's now making the connect. This is a great Bible study. I love this one. Kristen's making the connection with Brexit. 
that what, underli- what underlay that decision, in many ways, it was to return to the days of empire for England when we basically conquered the world with colonialism. Um, you can debate whether that's truly what they intended, but that wanting to return to a previous era, whether or not that is what, in a sense, God is calling that country to at this time. It's great. Maybe one more comment? Yes, ma'am, in the back. you're all hearing this, and I'm, I think you spoke nice and loudly, so I think most people heard you, but there's a question, uh, it's almost a generosity that seems to run through this part of the story in 1314. There is a generosity that Abram shows, and we're really going to get to it in 14. Um, he gives Lot the choice. He could have taken it. He could have made, he's a, he was the senior. In the patriarchy, he was above Lot. He could have said, I'm taking this, you do that. So there's a generosity in giving Lot his choice, and then you're saying the whole land, in a sense, was a treasure. And do we fully appreciate the blessings, the goodness that we've been given? And in our response, do we give away our very best or do we give away something less than our best? Is that, am I hearing you right? All right. And in the season of stewardship, that is an awesome thing to be talking about. You tell Chris when he comes back next week that I managed to get the stewardship campaign into our Bible study. But... But here's, here's something that Chris has been saying, and it's been transforming from, transformative for me. You do not give to St. Michael or whatever church you're part of, but you don't give to the church for the church's sake. You do, but not really. You give for the sake of your soul because there's something about giving our best that makes us better, that heals us, that cleanses our soul. And so that's what I hear you talking about is that generosity and how do we give of our substance? when it really counts. Um, And so think about that in your own lives and stewardship, not only with the the campaign that we have at St. Michael now, but also just in general, whether it be coats for Jubilee or or whatever. Um, Thank you for that reflection. I appreciate that. Let me do one more, and then I do want to get to 14. Yeah. Yeah, is he getting anywhere close to present day? And by the way, if you think of Abram, the one word you should think of is journey, sojourn, right? He's always on a journey. Right now, he's kind of in the southern part of Israel. So he was in Egypt, um, and now he's in what would be considered the southern part of Israel. He's not up as much near uh, the north, near Damascus and whatnot, although we're going to see in 14 in a military conquest, he goes up north, but right now he's more in the southern part of Israel. So yeah, he's in, he's, he's bullseye. He is right where the land of Canaan is. This is the promised land, Okay. Um, And last thing I'll say about this before I go to chapter 14, I went to the Holy Land um, uh, about five years ago now, and our guide said something that was really important. He said, we prefer that you not call it the Holy Land. We prefer that you call it the Land of the Holy One. Think about the difference. 
If it's holy land, that means it's mine and I'm going to take it. The land of the holy one means it's God's and we need to think about how do we share God's goods. It takes the onus off of possession and puts it on who really owns the land or whatever else. So I've never forgotten that and, and I'd catch myself saying, um, I took a trip to the land of the holy one. And it really does shift the conversation a little bit, especially when you think of the political situation, Palestinians, Israelis, it's an intractable, uh, in the, just this week, um, the US policy has now changed about the settlements. We're not gonna get into that today, but just to acknowledge, um, there's now a change in the um, kind of politics of the settlements. And I think that, that about the land of the Holy One versus the Holy Land is really important as we have those political conversations. Okay, let's move on now to 14. The first, I'm going to spare you the first um, 12 verses because basically it's just talking about all the names of the kings and where they're from. But what you need to know is that kings from the east came to conquer the kings closer to what would have been Canaan, uh, later day Israel, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and Salem. Now that's starting, that's Lot's land. They get conquered by this, these kings from the east. And so these kings take Lot, take his family, his possessions, and they basically march north with all of this. And word comes to Abram, and this is verse 13. So it says they've taken Lot, they've taken all his possessions, they've taken his family. And then it says, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, Abram the Hebrew, now you're starting to get distinction about the families. They want you to be clear now, we've got different tribes forming. Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the Oaks of Mamre, which, by the way, is where Abram was buried. It's where he built his altar and began his promised life, and it's also where he was buried. So this is very important land for Abram. Um, and basically, he had a couple of allies with him, uh, Eskel and Aner. Um, they were allies of Abraham, Abram. And when he heard that Lot had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So I want to just pause here for a second and point out a problem in this chapter. Up until this point, have you heard anything about Abram as military man? Doesn't it feel a little odd? It's okay. <laughs> Here's what's happening. What they're trying to say is, in every way, Abram is equipped to take possession of this land, even militarily. And it, again, if in the life of Abram, you're seeing the life of Israel in the future, there were times where Israel had to fight for their land. So now they've located within Abram this conquest story to basically mirror that Israeli um, need to go to battle for land. Um, that's kind of a crass way of putting it, but honestly, that's probably what the redactors did. It's not that Abram didn't fight a battle, he may have, but the significance at this point in the story is to say, as we're looking at the story of Israel, Israel sometimes has to fight for the land that God has given it, and here's Abram doing the very same thing. So they're getting a resonance with their, their patriarch. Okay, and then, um, and what's also interesting here is it's not just Hebrews who go to fight, it's the folks who work in his land and in his tents, and that would have been outsiders as well. So here's an example of the Hebrews allying with outsiders in purpose, uh, in pursuit of God's goals. Um, so you'll see that throughout the Old Testament where the Is uh, Israelites will ally with another group um, toward the purpose of regaining the land. So 
We know then that Abraham goes, there's a great victory, and it's almost humorous. You almost get this sense that these kings of the east who are so powerful are tripping over themselves to run away from this mighty warrior, Abram. And when you think of his more nomadic, his farming lifestyle, it doesn't comport with what we think of as Abram, but the redactors wanna say his might was so great that these kings fled before him. Abram found Lot, regained his possessions, brought them back, Um, to Sodom and Gomorrah and the land where he had come from. And then there's some interesting things here about Abram. We learn a lot about him starting in verse 17 and onward. First of all, the king of Sodom comes out to greet him um, and basically to thank him. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But then there's King Melchizedek. You've heard that name Melchizedek. That appears in the Psalm. It also appears in Hebrews. It is through Melchizedek that the priesthood of the Davidic line, King David, there was a priesthood there called the Zadokites. They trace it to Melchizedek. So even though Melchizedek was kind of an outsider, he wasn't a Hebrew, he still believed in the Almighty God. And he actually gives a praise and a blessing to God for Abram. So now you're linking the Hebrew world with this Canaanite world, but Abram basically joins him because Abram just knows that the name of God is Yahweh. That's, or the one that, you know, the one, the name that shall not be spoken. Jews would never say that, but we spell it out as Yahweh. Abram understood that that was God's name, and Melchizedek wouldn't have known the name Yahweh, but knows Almighty God. So here's an example of the, the Hebrew understanding joining with a priest from the land of Canaan, and They basically are in concert together. Not only does Melchizedek give his blessing, but then Abram gives 10% of all the spoils to Melchizedek and his household and his line and his priesthood. So here you have the beginnings of this um, engagement between the Hebrew understanding and the outsider understanding. Uh, And then in Hebrews, there's a really, in the New Testament, there's a really strange way that they basically link Jesus as even before Melchizedek and then follows in the line of the priests and King David. So that's complicated, but Melchizedek is an important name um, because it's a link between Christ as king, which you'll hear about more in the New Testament, but also this insider-outsider joining together. And here's Melchizedek's prayer. And look, he has bread and wine. He's an Episcopalian. He's getting ready to celebrate Eucharist. And Melchizedek says, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, maker of heaven and earth. So they have an understanding of a creator. That's, that's alike. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Um, and that really was an important moment in the biblical story because that was a um, legitimizing of Abram's conquest, a legitimizing of his presence in the land of Canaan, and actually his stature would have grown then. Remember, God had said to Abraham, look north, south, east, west, it's all gonna be yours. You're beginning to have the first signs that in, in his care of Lot, in his conquest against the eastern kings, the land is kind of beginning to consolidate under his rule, as it were. Um, So that's part of what's happening here. And then it says, and Abram gave one-tenth of everything to the priest. Um, That's on uh, 1420. And um, just a clarity around language. Sometimes we say, hey, have you made your tithe to your church? Sometimes we just mean that as of, have you made a pledge? But actually a tithe is something very specific, that's 10%. Um, so I pledge to St. Michael, but I have not yet mastered the tithe. 
So be careful, because there's other Christians out there who care a lot about this. And if you say you tithe to their, your church, they think you mean you give 10%. So if you don't give 10% or more, then you just say, I pledge to my church. That's interesting language around tithe. All right, any questions so far about the battle, um, about Melchizedek? Is this making sense? So this is what I talked about when we interpret the Bible versus the Bible interpreting us. It is fair to say that redactors sometimes make moves to either keep the story going, to underline an aspect of the character that they want to bring in another. I mean, they are editors, so they are assembling it, even the Gospels. They're assembled in a way that you will walk away with a particular understanding or view. It's not, and by the way, nowadays with our newspapers and if you um, plagiarize, you lose your job, it's not the same thing. Redactors were tasked with trying to assemble the narratives in a coherent way. And remember, chapters 1 through 11 are prehistory, so come on, that's, that's, we don't know what happened, but those are the stories that have come down. And so we're talking in big terms. Now we're getting into the patriarchs and matriarchs, but still that's ancient history. That's maybe a thousand years before Israel as we understand it. So, you know, no one met Abram. I mean, those redactors, this was probably written in 500. Genesis, this part of Genesis was probably written in 500 and it's referencing the period 1500 or 2000. So it'd be like us trying to write about Charlemagne or uh, Caesar or you know, even before uh, the Roman emperors. There is a sense that we know of them, we know something about their import, but we're going to, f we're going to arrange it in a way that makes the narrative coherent. And I hope, that doesn't, I hope that doesn't bother you too much. It's okay if it troubles you, but we have brothers and sisters who read the Bible literally, and it is exactly as you read it. And I will say that you need to go gently with your brothers and sisters around that, because this is one of the um, real points of contention right now in Christianity. Are we talking about this is recorded history and it happened exactly this way, or can we see the Bible more as a library to say, you know, some books are history and they're pretty accurate and they should be read as history, but there's other books that are meant to be comedies. They never were meant to be historical. They're comedic. Jonah and the whale, that's a comedy in the classic sense of the word. Um, or the prophets, or the Psalms. So if we can understand that the Bible is a, is a library of works, and a good interpreter always says, what genre am I reading? Am I reading a comedy? Am I reading a history? Am I reading a gospel format? That helps you know how to read it. Um, and so at St. Michael, I just want you to know it's really okay not to break the text apart just for fun, but to say, you know, we're kind of talking, it's not quite prehistory, but it almost is. We can't hold too tightly to a news report because that's not what the redactor's trying to do. The redactor's trying to do this hero of old and puts a military story in his narrative. Okay, so let's move on now because we've got Sodom. And this is fascinating. So basically, the king of Sodom recognizes what Abram's done and has said, if you'll just give me my people back, you can have all the goods. I mean, that's how grateful he is. But what does Abram say? Abram says, I have sworn to the Lord God most high. And it's interesting. The Lord is his word for God, Yahweh. And then he says God most high, which is Melchizedek's word. It's very fascinating. I have sworn to the Lord, God most high, maker of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours so that you might not say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who were with me, Aner and Eskol and Mamre, let them take their share. So again, you kind of have, back to your comment before, the generous, judicious Abram 
who doesn't take more than he ought. He, he does a, a thing that God has asked him to do. He's recovered Lot, which was his family's task, but then he doesn't get greedy. He doesn't, he doesn't take what by rights in war, the spoils of war are his. He doesn't, he doesn't take his right. He gives it back to the one who had been victimized and says, this is your property. Just let these people who help me, they get their share and the men have eaten, let them take that. Um, but I don't want to do anything that would make you say later that because I took from you, I have my greatness in God. So you start seeing this really remarkable Abram who's quite judicious, um, quite wise, almost like Solomon. Um, he has opportunity to take more than he needs and he doesn't take it. And I do think that has applicability to, applicability to today. Um, what It's a stewardship question, not fundraising campaign. Stewardship in the sense of all of the gifts of creation God has given to us, what do we need to survive and to thrive? And what can we give to others? And I think that's an important question in our day and time. Okay, any questions about that last part of 14 about uh, the king of um, Sodom? Anything? Okay, I think we have, good, we have time. So, and next week, um, you get into the very classic story. Once again, the Lord appears to Abram, makes a promise. And you have to wonder, did God really make like four promises to Abram? Or is the redactor having them come up again and again? It's fine to renew the promise. So I have no problem with saying it happened four or five times. Or you can have a basic um, promise that God made to Abram, and it reemerges almost literarily so that you never forget that everything in Abram's life is a response to what God has done. You just never forget it. Um, it's like a sermon where you hear, you'll hear someone do a refrain, they'll preach, and then they'll bring you back to that sentence or the verse in scripture. They'll preach, and sometimes the redactor is doing that. They never want you to forget that the promise comes from God, that Abram's not doing it in his own power. Okay, so if you would turn now to thir back to 13, chapter 13, verses 14 through 18. And I want you to shift gears a little bit. We've been more in kind of a question and format, a little bit didactic, but now I want you to go more into your meditative place. So we're actually going to take a minute of silence in a minute. And what I'm going to have you do is I'm going to have one of you read that passage, chapter 13, 14 through 18, through the end of the chapter. Just read it slowly and clearly so the group can hear. We'll have a little bit of silence and then I'll ask you a question. We'll hear it read a second time. I'll ask you a question and then a third time. All right, now we're gonna be on, we have, uh, normally this can take an hour, this process, and we have about 20 minutes. So what you're gonna see is a little bit of a speed version of Lectio Divina. Are you, you game? Can we try it? All right, can I have a volunteer to read those verses that I just mentioned? Thank you, Hank. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest to thee, will I give it and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust on the earth. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall the seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it, 
and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. Thank you, Hank. Is there a word, phrase, or image that you heard in that reading? All I want you to do is just call out word, phrase, or image from that section. Rise. Rise. Offspring. Altar. Give. Forever. Travel through. Land. I couldn't hear you. Build an altar. Good. Thank you. I need another volunteer to read it again. Um, nice and clearly so we can all hear it. There's something about the repetition. You hear something different the second and third times. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, raise your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Rise up, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Take a little bit of silence. Now this is a little bit of a deeper question, so we won't have many responses, but I would like you to let the elevator go down a little bit. Can you remember a time in your life when you encountered God or the promise of God and felt like you wanted to build an altar? And remember, build an altar just means you want to concretize, you want to make holy this moment. So think again, in your life, have you ever had an encounter with God that caused you to want to build a proverbial or a figurative altar to remember that encounter? Just take a moment. And would any brave soul like to speak up? And if so, I will bring you the microphone, sharing what is comfortable for you in this gathering, something related to that question. Just raise your hand. The birth of my children. When I gave birth and held the, those babies, my husband and I both said, how can anyone look at this and not believe in God? I mean, that's the ultimate. Build an altar. Mm -hmm. Thank you. On Sunday morning, on my knees next to my husband, who is now gone, just waiting for communion, I felt those were holy moments for us. Thank you. 
moments a little, yeah, a little closer speak closer moment and moments a profound natural beauty and do you have one in particular in mind or just in general several okay we'll do one more when have you wanted to build an altar when i was diagnosed with cancer i was so scared I was so, I felt so alone. I felt, I didn't know what to do. I knew I had to do something. And then this peace, this calmness came over me that, look, you don't have it. Hmm. And I can tell you this in your spirit. And then you go out and show the doctors hmm. that you're already cured. Hmm. Amen. Thank you. Could I have one more volunteer, someone who hasn't read yet, be willing to read the passage through for us? After Lot and Abram had parted, the Lord said to Abram, raise your eyes and look into the distance from the place where you are north and south, east and west, all the land you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants countless as the dust of the earth. If anyone could count the dust upon the ground, then he could count your descendants. Now go through the length and breadth of the land, for I give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and settled by the terebinths of the Mamre at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Take a moment of silence to let that resonate inside of you. And the final question is this, what are you being invited to do, be, or change as a result of this lesson? Let me say it again. What are you being invited in your life to do, be, or change in light of this reading? Take a moment to think, take a moment to think about that. Go ahead, and you can hold it. Oh, okay. Trust. Anyone else? If you want to just call it out, I'll repeat it. Accept and share. Accept and share. Did I hear someone say, look? Look. Lift up my eyes. Listen. Listen. And so what are you being called? So what are you being called to do, be, or change in light of that?
All right. But forever is kind of a long time. Maybe you're, maybe you're called to contemplate forever. Anyone else? Huh? Promise? Gratitude? Do you think Abram always felt grateful? He always responded with gratitude. But I wonder if he always felt grateful or if at times he was like, oh man, this promise... This is hard work, I wonder. But he always lands back on gratitude. Anyone else? Final, something you're being invited to do, be, or change as a result of this? Follow. Sorry? Follow. Follow. Be obedient. And, amen. So take a breath. We'll conclude that particular exercise. And I want to just ask you, How was that? Because there's very different ways of reading the Bible. There's study, there's didactic, which is great. But then there's almost a more prayerful, meditative way of entering into the scripture and letting it interpret you. And I'm wondering, do you have any reflections on that experience or um, whether that felt welcome or uncomfortable? So welcome and a little uncomfortable as well. Any other feedback on that particular way of doing biblical interpretation? I like it. I think you really learn the passage more. Okay, Kristen says, I like it because I really learn the passage more. It was the perfect place in which to do it. So it, there's a safety here, right, that's been established over the weeks. I think my question to you is, do you claim your integrity as a biblical interpreter. Because if you have integrity as an interpreter of scripture, then the text of your life needs to come to bear on the text of the Bible. That's where you find that resonance. That's why the sermons that make the most impact usually are the ones where you feel this resonance between what's in the text and what's in your life. And I guess what I'm saying is I think each one of you has the capacity to be an interpreter because you are the best reader of your own life. You're the best reader of your own text. And you can bring that to bear then on the scripture and on the things that, you know, there's the historical context. We want to read it responsibly. Um, But what would that look like if you said, wait, I'm, I'm an interpreter of scripture, not just that scholar in the book, that I have something to offer that passage based on my life. That's what I'd like you to think about and claim um, as you read that you actually have that gift. Any other questions or thoughts about today before we wrap up? Mary said it's a wonderful way to center. And it's either called Lexio Divina or it's also called African Bible study in some contexts because it's in the African nations that this way of kind of group collective wisdom we have a problem in our community. How do we address that together as a circle and to listen to the wisdom of the people in the circle? That's an interesting phone ring. I think someone might be saying our class is over. <laughs> Friends, thank you so much for coming today. I'm so glad you're here. And I think you, do you have, you don't have class next week, right? 
No, Thanksgiving week, okay. But Chris is going to be back and reinvigorated the first week of December. So come and be here. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you.